Thanks for listening to the teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church in Mullica Hill, New Jersey. We trust today's message will challenge you and move you closer to Christ. Here's pastor, teacher, and author, Phil Moser. Well, I know it's probably seemed like an aerobic workout if you are a volunteer today. You've been up and down and up and down and up and down in your seats, all right? But I'm going to ask everybody if you would stand one more time out of respect for the Word as we read through the text together. And we'll be in 1 John chapter 2, starting at verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way or in the same manner that he that is Jesus walked. Thank you. You may be seated. We were talking in 1 John this morning about uh, this idea that we might understand how to overcome habit-forming sins. And just let me point this out to you in the text, that over and over again you see this word occur, sins, 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 and even later. Therefore, we have to start, stop, start by just saying, okay, how do we overcome what I'm going to call habit-forming sins? Now, we know we will not live perf- perfectly this side of heaven. If you think you will, just ask the people you're living with, and they'll set you straight, okay? But the point is, we won't live perfectly, but we should be overcoming these kinds of sins, particularly the ones that are habit-forming. So here it is, five ways in the text Five helps for overcoming habit-forming sins. Here they are. Be patient, be definitive, be reliant, be honest, be resourceful. Be patient, be definitive, be reliant, be honest, and be resourceful. Now, let me take that first one, and I'll show it to you right in the text, okay? Be patient because you're still growing. How many of you have at some stage in your life said, man, I should have gotten over this by now? Can I see your hands? Okay. Okay. Now, I'm not letting you off the hook because you're going to get back on the hook here in a second. But I just want to remind you, right in the text, the first couple words right out of the text, you're going to be able to see why you need to be patient with the process. In fact, here it is. Look at it. Chapter 2, verse 1. My little children. This is how John writes. And John doesn't have a children's ministry, okay? He's not writing to seventh graders and, and below, and he's not writing to elementary school kids. He's writing to adults, but he calls them children. In fact, if you have your Bibles in 1 John, and I hope you do, just watch this. Go with me to 1 John. We're in chapter 2, verse 1. Look at verse 12. I am writing to you, little children. Look at verse 18. Children, it is the last hour. Look with me at verse 28. And now, little children. Look with me at chapter 3, verse 18. Little children, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. Look at chapter 4, verse 4. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is greater is in you than he that is in the world. This is the picture. John just says, listen, I understand that I'm going to speak to you as children. You say, well, where did he get that? That's a great question. I think he got that from Jesus. 
Because look at John 13, when Jesus addresses his disciples, the 11 men there around the table, because Judas has already slipped off the scene here, he says, little children, yet a little while I am with you, and you will seek me. So now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Picture this. Jesus, with all of these guys who think they're going to run the kingdom, just says, okay, before we leave the room, little children. Okay. And I love that language because I was thinking of how it is that a child struggles to grow and learn. Okay. Now, maybe you can't remember back this far. But just remember back to the first time you tried to tie your shoe, okay? You say, well, I don't remember that. Okay, so remember the first time you saw a child try to tie a shoe for the first time. Nobody got it right the first time. They tried it. They got frustrated. They tried again. They got frustrated. Right? Or the first time a child picks up an instrument and starts to play it. Like, you, you as a parent, when you rent or purchase that instrument, are just hoping they don't throw it across the room, okay? And then they start to play it, and then you think you'll throw it across the room, okay? The picture is this, right? That when we do something for the first time, it's really hard to do. And we forget that. We forget that when it comes to habit-forming sins. And that's why John says, listen, I write to you little children. Be patient, you're still growing. Here's the second idea. Be definitive. You cannot rename sin. Okay. The Bible is so crystal clear in this, and our culture isn't. Okay. The Bible is crystal clear that you cannot rename sin. In fact, just see it. Here it is, chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, he has an advocate with the Father. Verse 2, he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, here's our culture, but also for the sins of the whole world. You cannot, you have to be definitive. You cannot rename sin. Okay. Now, I stumbled upon <laughs> this theologian this week that gave me one of the, my favorite statements, and I don't even know who they are, okay? I know what they go by. They go by Susie Homemaker, okay? This is Susie Homemaker, okay? But this is a great statement. And if you're a parent, you just need to pause and let this resonate for a second. The gospel sounds very strange to a generation that has been told they are perfect, that loving themselves is virtuous, that their heart is always right, and that nothing is more important than being happy. Okay? Now, just let that settle in. You say, well, why does the gospel sound strange? The gospel sounds strange because that person doesn't, who, when we raise our children that way, they have no understanding of sin. Okay? So what's the purpose of the gospel? The gospel is that Christ came and died in the place of sinners, whom the apostle Paul said, with all of his spirituality, I am chief. So every single one of us is faced with the reality that, yes, we are sinners. So in a world that doesn't even use that word and redefines that word, it's just important that we're definitive in it. So let's just do that, okay? What is sin? Here it is. Three failures, a principle, and a rebellion. Three failures, a principle, and a rebellion. Here's the first one. Sin is a failure to keep God's law. Okay, sin is a failure to keep God's law. In fact, in Romans chapter 4, verse 15, it speaks of a transgression. It uses the word transgression. That, that literally is a, is a uh, parabasis. It's the word that means you stepped over the line. Okay? It's his law there, and you stepped over the line. Now, this is really cool, because the Bible does a great job of this. The Bible tells you that something is sin. Like, like God said, listen, you shall not bear false witness. So now when you lie either by what you say or what you don't say, 
you suddenly are stepping over the line. You're transgressing what God asked you to do. It's a failure to keep God's law. Here's the second one. It's a failure to conform to God's standard. It's a failure to conform to God's standard. Romans 3.23 captures it this way. It says, for all have sinned and fall short of, finish it for me, the glory of God. In other words, here is God's standard, Jesus, the glory of God, and every single one of us falls short of that. This is so important. Like, we're just laying down the basic, basic theology of sin. A failure to keep God's law, a failure to conform to God's standard. Here's the third one, a failure to do right. A failure to do right. In fact, um, James 4.16 says, for he who knows what is right to do and doesn't do it, to him it is sin, right? It's a failure to do what is right. So here's three failures. Failure to keep God's law, a failure to conform to God's standard, a failure to do what is right. There is nothing in this definition of sin that speaks of cultural or political correctness, simply what the Bible says. Therefore, when we start to define sin, we start first and foremost with what God said in his word, with whether or not I'm being conformed to his standard, and finally, if I know what is right to do and I do not do it, it is sin. Romans 14, 23 says, what is not of faith is of sin. In other words, I know something that's right to do, it's hard to do, I, I choose not to do it by faith, I'm sinning. Now, this is so important. Stop right there. Because it is so easy, so easy for Christians to say, yeah, yeah, yeah. Amen, amen, amen. I totally agree, Pastor Phil. I totally agree. That's what's wrong with our world. Okay. And I just want you to hit the brakes hard, not just pump them, but hard right there. Because I want you to see that what is sin is also a principle. Ready for this? And it's a principle within. In fact, I don't have it on the slides because I just came up with it thinking about this passage this morning. Here it is. Um, before you address the culture's sin, just say this with me. Before you address the culture's sin, one more time. Before you address the culture's sin, you would do well to remember the sin within. Okay. Before you address the culture's sin, and then let's finish it, you would do well to remember the sin within which is the great problem we have, right? Because Christians can sound really judgmental when we start looking at other people. And the only way we address the culture sin properly is to say, whoa, I got a problem with sin within me. So it's not just about being in the world and feeling that cultural pressure. It's about the fact that when I sit at home alone at night by myself, sin still dwells. In fact, I'll show you that, Romans chapter 7. Paul says, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells, there it is, within me. There is still something in our, in our flesh, in our desires that wants to do what is, what is wrong. In fact, he goes on to say in verse 18, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, say it again, but the sin that dwells within me. This is so important. 
you and I have to come to grips with the fact that we still have sinful desires that are battling with the new desires of the new man that Christ has put in us. And and we still live in those old habits and that old way of thinking. And even though we don't want to do it, we find that we do do it. And that's because I think we assume that, oh, I'm not struggling today, I guess I'm over it. And then wham, out of nowhere, temptation comes and we fall just like, we just fall right over like a tree on Jackson Road in a, in a tornado, okay? We just fall right over. When we think our roots are deep, we forget that the sin is within us. Now, let me take you back to Susie Homemaker for a second, okay? And just watch this statement in light of Romans chapter seven. This sin, what Paul is saying, is the sin dwells within you, okay? You still have sinful struggles, and however you want to unpack that, whether you, however you see that, you just got to know that God put within you a new heart, but you're still in this body of flesh, and that flesh, that flesh had certain habits, habitual ways of doing things. It would continue to do them even if you found no pleasure in them anymore, because that's how sin works. It's habit-forming. So just think of this. You you're raising a child, you're growing up, or maybe you grew up in a generation, and Susie Homemaker reminds you, right? The gospel sounds very strange to a generation that's been told they are perfect, they've never sinned, loving themselves is virtuous, they cannot possibly be selfish, right? Their heart is always right, their motives are always perfect, right? And nothing is more important than being happy. That becomes their goal. And the Bible says, quite to the contrary, that child, that adult sitting there still has sin that dwells within. They still battle with sin. Dwells within. They still battle with sin. Now, you say, okay, Phil, I get it. I get it. That's what the Bible says. I'm understanding it. Okay, uh, now what am I supposed to do? You're supposed to understand one more thing, okay? That when it comes to sin, it's not just a failure to keep God's law. It's not just a failure to conform to God's standard. It's not just a failure to do what is right. It's not simply the principle within that we struggle with sin, even when we're believers. It's also flat out a rebellion against God. And for just a moment, pause. And remember that we were singing this morning all about how great God was and how perfect his faithfulness is, and yet we still struggle to not rebel against him. In fact, I'll take you to Romans chapter 3 to explain that. For we have already charged that all are under sin, Paul says, verse 10. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. Here it comes. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is in their tongues to deceive. The venom of asper snakes is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Before Christ, this is your condition before God. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Here's the point, right? That's who we are without Christ. Now, that gives you the third one, okay? Now, that's all the bad news, so let's just turn the corner on the good news for a second. You not only need to be patient, you not only need to be definitive, but you need to be reliant. You have an advocate, okay? Now, I'm going to unpack this in a way you may not have thought about it before, so just sit tight with me because it's the deep gratitude that we have an advocate that actually should draw us away from some of the temptations of sin. And I want you to see this, all right? 
Notice how John writes about it. He says, my little children, okay, be patient. I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin, okay? You gotta be definitive. But if anyone does sin, the, 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 the Greek text there actually kind of assumes that you'll sin. So it doesn't sound like, you, like you're gonna be perfect and there actually is someone who won't sin. Some said you could render it like this. Um, if anyone does sin, in parenthesis, which we all will do, okay? Then... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now, let me just unpack that with two words that I need to introduce you to. One is the word advocate, and the other is the word propitiation. So let's talk about advocate first. The advocate is simply this, the Lord Jesus Christ in whom there is no sin. Okay? The advocate is the Lord Jesus Christ in whom there is no sin. We understand that Christ is, in a sense, an advocate, like our defense attorney standing on our behalf. Now, before we fully unpack that verse, just grasp that. This is the one who came. This is the one who died. This is the one why when someone says to me, well, how can God condemn people to hell just because they didn't believe in Jesus? The answer to that is, listen, the Father gave his only son great sacrifice. The son followed the will of the Father, died on a cross, separated from God as Father, felt his Father's wrath for you, and yet you would reject that offer? Okay. How can you not be rejected by God? This is the advocate, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom there is no sin. In fact, um, Westcott captures it this way. In addition to the idea of God as faithful and merciful, we now have Christ as a priestly advocate and mediator. I love this. He relieves the faithful of all their anxiety about their salvation. Now, once more endangered by sin. Let me explain that. You sin, and one of the first things you do is doubt. Will God accept me? Will God accept me? Right. I can't believe I'm still doing this. Will God accept me? And there's anxiety in that, right? There's worry in that. Maybe I'm not even saved, you might think. And when we remember that Christ is our advocate, we find that he faithfully relieves the anxiety because he is standing there saying, it's not about him, it's not about her, I know they sinned, Father, it's about my righteousness. It gets better than that. He assures them that in spite of their weakness, they can draw near to the throne of grace. When you and I sin, particularly the the habit-forming sins that we keep repeating, when we sin, it's so easy to just pull ourselves away from mentally. We can't pull ourselves away from God physically, but pull ourselves away from God mentally, and we say, oh, he'd never accept me. He never would have accepted you if it wouldn't have been for the advocate in the first place. It's not about what you have done. It's about what the advocate does. But I want to show you something that's even better than that, okay? The Bible speaks of the fact that we have an accuser, and, and uh, the artist back in 1750 captured it this way. Remember when the angels came before God and um, the demons came, and, and Satan looks down and says, hey, listen, God says, have you seen Job? See how God's pointing at Job? And see how Satan here, I've circled his finger. He's pointing as if to accuse Job. Now, he's got nothing to accuse Job on, so remember, he accuses Job on his motives. Satan says, listen, does he serve you for nothing? You've given him everything. Take it away and see what happens. Okay. The accuser works like that. And it doesn't only have to be Satan who serves as the accuser, but it is also us who sometimes accuse ourselves in that process because we keep falling into the sin. And what I want you to see is the advocate stands in, in the face of the accuser. In fact, I came upon this great 
I, I guess I had forgotten this, but in Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan describes a battle between the accuser and Christian in the valley. Remember, that's this metaphor that John Bunyan wrote in prison after he'd been there for a few years. Um, when they're in the Valley of Humiliation. And he says, one of Satan's ploys is to recite a laundry list of the Christian sins. That, that's how it happens, right? He's accusing, accusing, accusing. And so he says, and I'm paraphrasing it here, he says something like, Satan says, you fainted the first setting out when you were almost, you almost choked in the gulf of despond. You didn't attempt, uh, you attempted wrong ways to alleviate your burden of sin. He just lists this whole list of his sins. And he says, finally, when you talk about your journey and what you've seen and heard, you inwardly desire vain glory in all that happens. Okay? So the accuser says to Christian, I mean, who are you? You do everything wrong. And Christian's response to the accuser is full of humility and faith. This is what he says. All this is true, and much more which thou hast left out. But the prince whom I serve and honor is merciful and ready to forgive. And besides, these infirmities possessed me in thy country, for there I was sucked into them, and I have groaned under them and been sorry for them and have obtained pardon of my prince. And I love this. At the mention of Christ's forgiveness, Satan flies into a rage. Why? Because Satan, the accuser, cannot abide the fact that his accusations are overcome by the grace of God in Christ. Amen. That's right. So for just a moment, understand that when you are accused, either by Satan or inwardly to yourself, the answer is not, I'll do better. The answer is, I have an advocate. I want to show you one more thing hidden in the text. And you'll see it there if you look back at the text where it says, and we have an advocate with the Father. So this little preposition with is, a Greek, is the Greek preposition pros. It actually means forward or towards. Okay? So I just want you to not miss this image. Okay? Here you are. You've sinned. You've fallen again. There, if you could imagine yourself before the God, the Father, you would never look at him. You'd have your head down, right? You'd just be looking down. Like, I did it again. I did it again. Your advocate isn't just here with you. Oh, it, this is great. He is here with you. Parakaleo, it's the word advocate there. Parakaleo means you, para, alongside, called alongside. He's alongside of you. But there's more than that. He's alongside of you, and he is pros, facing the Father, speaking on your behalf. You feel shame and I feel shame and we have our head down. Not so with Christ. He's looking right at the Father because he's an advocate with the Father, forward towards the Father, looking at the Father. And he's saying, listen, this one's mine. I've paid for this one. Okay. Now, for just a moment, if you and I could grasp that image, when we are tempted... Man, we'd probably just run from temptation as fast as you can imagine. Because we'd be thinking, this is the one who died for me. This is the one who came for me. This is the one who lives for me. And when I do sin, I don't... He stands before the Father and says, I'm his advocate. I know he sinned, but I paid for it. And somehow, we're over here with our head down, not just rejoicing at the top of our lungs that our advocate pays for our sin and is an advocate to the Father. Let me give you one more word. Here it is. It's the word propitiation. This is in my definition. It's Wayne Grudem's, but it's a great one. What is propitiation? It's a sacrifice that bears God's wrath and changes God's wrath towards us into favor. Okay, just let that thought settle in for a moment. Okay, for he is our propitiation for our sins. 
it, it is this reality that Christ was the sacrifice that bore God's wrath on the cross and changed God's wrath that should have come at us towards God's favor on us. Wow. Amazing. And still we're not done. Sacrifice that bears God's wrath. This is also how we think about it when we come to face these sins that are habit-forming sins. Um, let's take a look at just two more words. Here they are. Be honest. You can't make excuses. You got a habit-forming sin? I'm just telling you. You can't quit. You got to stop not calling it sin. You got to say, this is a sin. This is a violation of my relationship with God. It's a violation of my relationship with others. This is serious. It's not, I'll get over it. Okay? And I know that because look at the text real quickly. It says, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So, with that in mind, i got to give you three ways we're dishonest about our sin. Okay? This is just three ways, and, and there's probably more, but here's three. Okay? So just say them with me. We speak, we see, we compare. Say it with me. We speak, we see, we compare. Here's the first way that you're looking at the text again. You act like you don't have any sin. You claim that you know God, but you don't keep his commandments, and that makes you a liar. So here's three ways you're dishonest about your sin. Number one, we speak of intention as if they were actions. We speak of intentions as if they were actions. Now, ask me how I know that. Say, Pastor Phil, how do you know that? Because I do this all the time, okay? That's how I know it. I know that when Kim asks me to do something, I give her my intention. And then when I'm giving her my intention, see, I'm patting myself on the back. Okay. I pat myself on the back because I'm telling her what I intend to do. But sometimes, often, I think just because I intend to do it means that I did it. And that's not true. And that's how we look at all of our sins. We say, oh, I'll do better next time. I'll, I won't do that again. We're giving our intentions, and we're expecting approval for our intentions. Look back at this text again. Here it is. Watch this. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. That's an action. It's not an intention. It doesn't say, by this we know we've come to know him, because we intend to keep his commandments. It says we keep them. And whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. This is how you're dishonest. You are speaking of your intentions as if they were your actions, and they're not the same thing. So just recognize that. Here's a second idea. We see others as the primary cause of our wrong choices. We see others as the primary cause of our wrong choices. And I chose those words very carefully because I do believe that others can be a secondary cause of our wrong choices. We call, the Bible calls, it uses the word stumbling. The Bible says you don't want to cause somebody to stumble. You can be a secondary cause, but you are never the primary cause of another person's wrong choices because they are making the choice. Right? And so therefore, you can never say, well, I only get mad because you do that. No, 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 no. Primary cause, sin within. Sin within. You struggle with the desire within and if that person wasn't there, it'd be somebody else that was there. And if that person wasn't there, it'd be somebody else that was there. And that's why when you keep saying, um, you're the reason I do what I do, you're the reason I sin, that cannot possibly be right biblically. We see others as the primary cause of our wrong choices. And you only have to go back to Genesis to see it, right? Um, 
Adam and Eve, why are you hiding? What's with that, what's with that fig leaf outfit? I've never seen that before. Okay. Where was that? And their answer is, it's the woman you gave me. And Eve looks and says, it's the serpent you put in the garden. Okay. And the serpent looks around and there's nobody else to point to and he doesn't have any arms anyhow. So he's out of luck. Okay. Here's the point. You cannot make somebody else the primary cause of your wrong choices. If you do that, you're lying to yourself. You're dishonest about your sin. Finally, one last one. Here it is. We compare ourselves to others whose external sins seem worse than our own. We compare ourselves to others whose external sins seem worse than our own. 2 Corinthians 10, 12, Paul said, For we are not vain to class and compare ourselves against some of those who commend themselves for measuring themselves by themselves, comparing themselves with themselves. They are as fools. Okay, there it is. Okay. But notice this has a really important word in it too. It's not the word compare. It's the word external. You and I compare ourselves to somebody else's external sins because that's all we see. And we forget again that you and I struggle with the sin within. Therefore, we look good on the surface. Wow, we are so pharisaical in this. We look so good on the surface because we compare our externals to their externals. And guess what? We don't do what they would do. That's what you see. And you've forgotten to look within. That if you compare yourself to what's going on inside, chances are you're probably worse than they are which is why we tend to compare ourselves to others as we see their external sins, not wrestling what they're wrestling with inside. Finally, one last one. Here we are, and then we're done. Be resourceful. Be resourceful. Be patient, be definitive, be reliant, be honest, be resourceful. You have the tools. Okay. Now, right now, you're probably thinking, okay, Phil, uh, I just need the practical stuff, okay? I can't give you the practical stuff without telling you how serious it is. Like, that's like a doctor saying, oh, by the way, I, I know you're dying of this disease. Just let me tell you what you need to do. He, he's got to convince you that you're dying or you're never going to take the medication, right? You'd never take the medication. It tastes too bitter. You don't like it. So he says, listen, I'm going to spend the first 10 minutes in this meeting telling you you're going to die unless you take this medication. Now, he said, I can give you your medication. So that's what I did. I just told you, you're in trouble. You're never going to overcome habit-forming sins unless you understand their seriousness. But here's the truth. You have a resource that you may not have realized. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we, we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way or manner that he walked. Now, just stay with me real quick and watch this. I'm going to take these verses backwards. Over in 1 John chapter 4, I think about verse 2, we discover that the one who believes that Christ came in the flesh is truly of God. What, the, what John is saying there is he's saying, listen, Jesus came in the flesh. He was fully God, but he is also fully human. That he came truly 100% humanity. He was a human being. And then a little later, if you jump forward to chapter 3, about verse 6 or so, it says something like this. It says, and in him there is no sin. Okay. Watch. Fully human, there is no sin. How did he get here? Right. How, how, did he, how, did he, how did he live this entire life and all the temptations without sin? You say, whoa, whoa, whoa. Phil, he did that because he was God. He wasn't going to sin. That's not my question. That's not my question. My question is, if he was fully human, tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin, how did he get here to have never sinned? And the answer 
is that when you read the Gospels, you're going to see that he used key resources that are available to you and me. That you just got to let that thought settle in. How does Jesus know in Matthew chapter 4, therefore, when Satan tempts him and he's been hungry for 40 days, how does he know to say, it is written? Have you not read what the Bible said, Satan? Oh, you answer with the Bible? I'll answer you again with the Bible, he says. You got that verse out of context. Let me give you one that's in context. Then he says again, thirdly, it is written. And you know what the Bible says? Then Satan left him for an opportune time. It's like a sword fight, like a vicious, violent, lightsaber sword fight. Jesus just dropping scripture and just battering away at Satan until he pulls away, okay? You say, well, of course, he knew that. He's the living word of God. He had the word of God. He knew the word of God. Not so. He didn't come out of the womb speaking Bible verses, okay? He learned them. He memorized them. So here's today's takeaways. Three things. These are your resources, right? Three things. Jesus battles his temptation with the same resources that are available for you and for me. Time with his Father, time in the Word, time with others. Time with the Father, that's prayer, okay? Time in the Word, that's him both opening up those scrolls, studying and reading, as well as memorizing, and time with others. That's why he takes the disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane with him on his final night, and he says, hey, my, my soul is deeply troubled. Will you watch with me in prayer? He does not try to run this thing alone. Now, just for a moment, think about this. You've been battling a life habit, a habit um, kind of sin on your own. You've never told anybody about it. Do you think you're better than Jesus? Okay. Even Jesus didn't try to do this thing alone. He said to James and Peter and John, will you guys come with me? Even though he knows they're going to fall asleep. Okay. It's just the fact that he's asking to show you these are resources you and I should use. Here's a great question. Before you just say, well, Jesus was God. Jesus was God. So he didn't struggle like I struggle. Not so. He struggled more than you and I struggle. You and I fall to temptation at the smallest wind. He had to undergo hurricane force winds in his temptation, and he didn't fall. How did he not fall? Time with the Father, time in the Word, time with others. Those are your resources. Let me ask you a simple question, okay? When was the last time if Jesus memorizes all these verses so that he can battle Satan, and he's got the verses in context too, it's a whole other discussion, and it's really cool how he does it, but, but Jesus memorizes these verses so that he can stand against temptation. Simple question. When was the last time you memorized a verse to stand against temptation? You say, well, hmm, let's see. I'm about 50, and the last time I memorized a verse was when I was in Awana, okay? That should tell you something about how seriously you're taking sin. You're not even using the resources that Christ used to battle temptation. The point is this, that when the text says that we ought to walk in the same way that he walked, that's what it means. The word walk in the New Testament is, is the daily kind of thing. It's a 24-hour thing. It's you putting one foot in front of the other. I get up out of bed this morning. I'm going to take a step, okay? I'm walking. I'm doing something daily. We ought to walk in the same manner that he walked. That's what the text is saying. Time with Father, time in prayer, time in the Word, memorize and study, and time with others. Find a group, two or three, that you are sharing your struggles with because that's the way that Jesus walked. That's the way that we should walk. 
Father, it's been a privilege to look to your word this morning, to be humbled by it, for us to just have the image of your son as our advocate, looking right into your eyes, Father, and saying, I paid for the sins of this one. Lord, we should just, it just causes us in deep gratitude to not even give a thought or a consideration to the temptations that so easily beset us. Father, I know we live in a world that is, has just left sin completely out of the vocabulary. And that's why they don't see any need for the gospel at all. And so I pray that we as Christians would become so winsome, so loving that they would listen to us in our humility say, I know what it's like to struggle. I have different struggles than you, but I struggle. That we wouldn't be the cause of their stumbling because we're so judgmental. But rather they would hear us share our concerns for their sin out of a deep sense of humility. May we reach out to those around us in that way. Father, we're reminded again that these sins become habit-forming. And we don't want them to be. We want to see victory in these areas of our life. And so we pray, Lord, that you would help us this week to take sin seriously, to not make excuses, to cling to your resources, and to have great confidence in your faithfulness on our behalf. In Jesus' name, amen. We trust you've been encouraged by today's lesson. For resources to help you move forward in Christ, we invite you to check out our website, aboutfbc.org, or our Facebook page, Fellowship Bible, Mullica Hill.